Today we get to continue our series uh, entitled A Good Life, where we explore some of the wisdom literature of the Bible to discern what it looks like, what it means to live an abundant life in fellowship with God and each other. Last week we explored Proverbs from the very beginning of the book and what it means to have a good mind. Today we turn our attention towards what a good community looks like. And to do so, we go from the first chapter of Proverbs to the last one. Proverbs, as we discussed this uh, last week, was written as a sort of practical life guide for young men preparing most likely to become Torah scholars and scribes, what we would think of as lawyers today, essentially. Proverbs has 31 chapters, and a common way of studying the book is to read a chapter of it a day throughout the period of a month. And it's a a practice I'd commend to you trying sometime. Anyways, the the book of Proverbs is bookended by uh, discussing two different women. It begins with Lady Wisdom, who we met last week, who is a personification of the ideal of, of wisdom, the wisdom of God, and what that means for us to follow along her pathway. Proverbs ends with this ode, this poem to a capable wife is our reading today, giving guidance to these young men on deciding whom to partner with and to share their lives. But as we'll see, this guidance has implications that include but go far beyond choosing a partner and spouse. But it gets to the core of how we find and how we make community in our lives. I invite you to listen now with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's Word together from the 31st chapter of Proverbs, beginning with the 10th verse. A capable wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid for her household when it snows, for all her household are clothed in crimson. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the city gates, taking his seat among the elders in the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchant with sashes. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy. Her husband, too, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. 
Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the city gates. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You know, there's a common trope or theme that tends to go out through sitcoms. Spanning all the way from Tim the Toolman Taylor in Home Improvement, one of my childhood favorites, to Phil Dunphy in Modern Family, and these are just two of many, many examples. Their wives, Jill and Claire respectfully, are type A superheroes. They do it all. They keep their family fed, clothed, they pay all the bills, all the while the entire stress load of the house falls seemingly on their shoulders alone. All of this while their clumsy, often aloof husbands are off doing something at best frivolous and at worst stupid with their friends. Now, the same could be said of many other shows, and and, uh, more recently I've seen it on popular HGTV shows that have husband and wife teams. If you've seen them, I'm guessing you know what I'm talking about. Sociologists are really quick to point out this ever-present theme in television and to talk about the damage that it does to both husbands and wives, to partnerships in general in terms of creating healthy marriages and relationships, as well as gender roles in society. Now, I have to admit, friends, I'm guilty at laughing at these shows like everyone, but when I really think about it, as a man trying, but am no, by no means at all uh, perfect, as my wife, I'm sure, would be happy to tell you, to be a loving and equal partner with my wife and to show my children that the same, I'm a little offended by this, this trope, this theme, and I can't help that we can do better. Our text today, friends, unfortunately, has had some of these same effects as the sitcom theme Um, And it's had these effects in the church throughout generations. Though, as I hope we'll explore together, that's neither the intention or the meaning of this very unique and very formative text in our Bible. I was so glad this week when my Monday noontime Bible study resumed. Uh, We we call this this study, uh, jokingly, the Society of Armchair Preachers, where We gather together and talk about the sermon from the last week, and we look ahead at the Bible passage that I'll be preaching on and come up with some ideas together and and study the text. Uh, And I do would would, uh, certainly welcome any of you to join the study uh, as you're able to via Zoom. When we looked at our text this morning, one of the women in our study jumped in and uh, said something very insightful. The lady in this passage sounds wonderful, but you know, I've always wondered, what's her husband doing while she's doing all this? If she's off doing all these great, wonderful things, what's, what's the guy up to? It's really a fair question, friends. According to this ode, she rises before the rest of her family, makes sure they're well-fed and dressed. She runs a successful household, business, and farm dresses to the nines, all the while she doesn't stress out about things. Now, a lot of ink has been devoted to these words that um, 
can fill several bookshelves at Christian bookstores over the years. Using this passage as a sort of model of biblical womanhood, creating a standard that fellow pastor Amy Butler, whose work very much inspired this series, says, is a standard that's impossible to meet, and her example is readily invoked to encourage, or alternately, shame anyone who reaches for one of those books in the Christian bookstore. Our Bibles introduce this woman as a capable wife. And scholars are really quick to jump in and say that's a really bad translation. That word there for capable in Hebrew is kael. It's the word for strength. And often in a military context for strength. One scholar who I think had, had a wonderful way of translating this in context said she'd prefer to say an ode to a courageous wife. Now, it's important to note, too, that like Lady Wisdom, the wife described in the ode is not a real person. She's an archetype whose description is not so much a checklist for women to aspire to, but rather wisdom imparted to young men who are preparing to go out into the world to seek a life partner. Also important to note that this is a song. It's an ode. It's a poem set in an acrostic setting, meaning each verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. To me, this gives even more credence that these words aren't meant to be seen as a checklist or as a measuring stick, but rather as a full catalog, a poetic listing of faithful attributes. So let's return to the question posed by one of the participants in, our, in my study this week. What is the proverbial husband doing while this proverbial wife is off being a superhero? Remember, Proverbs was likely written for young men who are finishing their training to go off into the world as scribes or as lawyers, judges today even. These are men preparing to be leaders in their community as scribes, and so they would be among the elite. And our passage says as much. They're known in the city gates and take their seats among the elders. Scholar Elaine James of Princeton Seminary lays out how this text really shows us what women in um, the elite classes during this time were able to do. They're able to oversee a household staff, run successful businesses, even be far in the work of farming, planting vineyards, buying and selling real estate, all the while upholding the Torah imperatives to give generously to the poor. But get this. What the endless books that perpetuate an impossible standard for Christian women fail to show in this passage is its ending. Hear these words. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. This, friends, is a pretty radical statement for the day and time. One that encourages equality between husbands and wives, both in terms of property, but also in terms of praise and honor. These young men are given this ode as they go out into the world to seek to find a spouse, a life partner, but then are given this directive, this imperative. Give her a share. Give her ownership of the stuff and property that you have. And not just ownership, but also honor and praise as well. In turn, this text encourages those of us in committed relationships to seek out ways that we might honor each other. We might share equally in responsibilities, give grace to each other as well when we fail to meet 
these impossible standards set uh, for us. But yet, as my title of good community suggests, this has a lot more to do when this has more to do with just relationships between spouses. It's about community. A good community is made up of healthy relationships of all kind. Marriages, friendships, relationships between coworkers, neighbors, church members. These are the people we surround ourselves with. They play a role, for better or for worse, in the makeup of our lives. Some of these relationships we get to choose, and others, of course, are chosen for us. This parting wisdom can then be understood as a guide on who to surround yourselves with, how to make and sustain community in each stage of your life. I know as a parent, we care deeply about our children's social lives. And we hope that their friends are not only good companions in their journey of life, but also people of good character that can help them foster mutual growth together. But do we think about that as much as adults? Who do we surround ourselves with? Do your friends live lives of integrity? Do they care for others? Do they reach out a hand to the poor? Do they provide not only companionship for you, but also help you grow as a person, as a child of God? Now, this isn't to say, friends, that as soon as a friend disappoints you, that you should toss them to the curb. Far from it. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We all have lapses of judgment. And most importantly, as broken humans, we all fail each other. If anything, far too often in the world we live today, we are really quick to cast doubt and judgment on someone and avoid them altogether if they share a different viewpoint from us. What I think this text shows us is the power the community around us has to strengthen us in faith and hope. They can make us better people. They can help us grow as disciples, as children of God. And it's also a reminder that we have an impact on the community around us as well. Now, when thinking about our theme, I couldn't help to think of the person who best uh, shared this understanding of community, and that is Fred Rogers, who we know better as Mr. Rogers. Um, I'm doing the class later on today, so I would love for you to join me right after service to go more into that. If you want to see any of the clips from the show or hear any of the songs, but I was reminded of Mr. Rogers and thought I needed to get into uniform today <laughs> to go into this because Mr. Rogers' whole show was premised in a neighborhood, the very exemplar of community and of fellowship. Now, the people in the community, both the, the, um, the real people around him that would come by, like the mailman or the police officer, as well as in the land of make-believe, they, they found so much joy in each other, but every once in a while they'd fail each other as well. Mr. Rogers' uh, show, The Neighborhoods, really showed how community matters and how we matter to one another. But the thing I love most about Mr. Rogers and community that pertains to our, our passage and really the core of what I think this 
ending of Proverbs tells us is something Mr. Rogers would root everything in his teaching to children. The idea that we're always growing. He'd say, you're growing. How often do we forget that as adults, that we're still growing? We're growing in community, we're growing in relationships. Don't stop growing. Find ways to connect to one another, to God, and to build this beloved community that God calls us to be. This is, this is what, to me, the, the ending of Proverbs is all about. Finding ways to strengthen the people around you, finding ways to let the people around you strengthen you in turn. Friends, may we do this. May we seek to grow more and more as individuals, as disciples, but also as a community that we might resemble what the great theologians call the beloved community and a glimpse of God's kingdom to come.